This episode, titled How to Write a Scripted Audio Fiction Series with Jessica Wright Buha and Bilal Dardai of Unwell, was published on HowlRound Theatre Commons on March 18, 2020. Please see the link in the show notes for the transcript on the HowlRound website. Adventures in Audio Fiction is supported by HowlRound Theatre Commons, a free and open platform for theatre makers worldwide. The HowlRound podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and HowlRound.com. Hey friends, welcome to Adventures in Audio Fiction. My name is Tamara Kassane. I'm a theatre maker and the host of the podcast Artist Soapbox based in Durham, North Carolina. Although theater is my first and enduring love, over the last three years, my creative work has turned increasingly towards writing and producing scripted audio fiction. First, by adapting versions of my stage plays into audio dramas, and more recently by writing to audio directly as I develop two scripted audio fiction serials. This interview series for HowlRound is part of my quest to learn more about audio drama by speaking with the people who are working in the medium, some of whom have a background in theater and some who don't. But either way, they are knocking it out of the park. I have so many questions, and you may have some too. As theater artists, what can we learn from audio fiction creators? What skills can we leverage to create powerful audio work? What do we need to learn? Is scripted audio fiction an evolution of a theatrical form, or is it its own distinct and discrete form altogether? In this episode, you'll hear from Jessica Wright Buha and Bilal Dardai, staff writers with Unwell, a fiction podcast about conspiracies, ghosts, and unusual families of blood and choice. This episode is heavily and wonderfully focused on the process of writing scripted audio fiction. Jessica and Bilal dig right into the differences between writing for stage and writing for audio, the writer's room of Unwell, the timeline, and what it's like to write for an ongoing series. Bilal, Jessica, and I all happen to be parents as well, so near to the end of our conversation, you'll hear us talk about how writing for audio might fit into the life of a parent writer. Bilal Dardai is an award-winning playwright, performance artist, and essayist with over two decades of experience working on stages throughout the Chicago area. He is an ensemble alumnus and former artistic director of the Neo-Futurists, a current ensemble member of Lifetime Theater, and a member of the writing staff for Heartlife's acclaimed audio drama, Unwell. Bilal lives in Evanston with his wife, son, and a vast array of eclectic media. As a writer of audio dramas, Jessica Wright Buha is a three-time finalist of Death Scribe, an international horror radio play competition, and is currently a staff writer on the audio drama Unwell, a Midwestern Gothic mystery, which recently hit half a million downloads and is regularly in the top 50 on Apple's Fiction Podcasts chart. She also has extensive experience as a theatrical playwright, and her plays have been produced by the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra, a co-production with Filament Theater, South Africa's National Children's Theater, Lifeline Theater, The Plagiarists, The Whiskey Rebellion, and others. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Bilal. Hi, Jess. Thank you so much for being here for this conversation. Thanks, Tamara. Thanks so much for having me. 
Let's start with how you started writing for audio. Could you could you tell me a little bit about that and then specifically how you got involved with Unwell? There's this um, thing in Chicago called Describe, which is really amazing. Um, it's a festival of 10-minute horror radio plays. They you know get submissions from all over the world, and the winner gets a literal bloody axe. Or I guess it's painted. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I... I've always just kind of loved audiobooks as a kid and listening to the radio. So I submitted um, and I ended up getting first in this thing. And so that was, it was really amazing to, to be able to, to write kind of a little more abstractly and a little more poetically, you know, leaning into not having to really worry about where the actors are standing. Cause I have a, a theater background. So, so yeah. So once I was kind of, I was in, uh, a buddy of mine, uh, Scott Barsati was um, involved with Wild Claw, the theater that put on Death Scribe. And so he encouraged me to apply to submit for Death Scribe. So I did. And yeah, and I kind of just fell in love with the medium. As far as how I got involved with Unwell, it was interesting. So um, Jeffrey Gardner, they're one of the executive producers of Unwell. And they were the executive producer of Our Fair City, which was Heart Life's show they did previously to Unwell. And they think they played violin on this, this play that I wrote for mm-hmm. Death Scribe. It was called Alabama Mermaid. And it was chosen several years later to tour to Miami as part of like a group of five death scribes to travel down there. And Jeffrey went down there and they played violin on my piece and they were a big fan of it. And so when there was an open call for submissions to apply to to develop the show that would become Unwell, um, and I was encouraged to apply. And so I did. And I, I'm just so bewilderedly lucky that, you know, people reached out to me to encourage me to, to apply. So uh, for me, I, I also come from a live theater background and a performance art devised theater background um, specifically, although I've like written sort of more conventional plays, but I've done a lot of work mostly in devised theater. So I spent 12 years with uh, a performance art troupe in Chicago called the Neo-Futurists. And then at, at the end of 2016, I went inactive from the ensemble and so I find myself kind of like drifting for a little bit. <laughs> and a friend of mine who I'd met through my previous work, she worked on a podcast called Pleasure Town, which was uh, being was done by WBEZ. They had like a handful, they had, they had a very small audio fiction wing. And Pleasure Town, I'm sure you can still find it online. It's they've had they had three seasons, and it's set in a, a small town in Oklahoma that was basically a hedonist community and it's, you know, a completely fictional community in like the late 1800s. And I was just kind of riveted by like the sort of characters they were creating and like the, like the sound work they were doing. Um, and so I, I reached out to my friend Gwen who was on the writing staff and said, how did you get into this? What's, you know, what's that about? And uh, she invited me to come to an early meeting for season four. And so I actually spent a year um, working with that team on writing season four. Unfortunately, season four is still kind of in production limbo. Like all the scripts got written, many things got recorded, but a handful of handful of reasons uh, season four still hasn't been released. But while that was going on, Eleanor Hyde, the other executive producer for Unwell, reached out to me about this. And I know Eleanor also from previous theater work. She was the managing director of New Leaf Theater in Chicago, where I'd put up a handful of my uh, other plays. And so, yeah, it was uh, kind of just an interview and then they brought me aboard. I, I don't think I knew who else was on the writing staff until that first meeting. I had to be reminded that Jess and my wife had worked together 
on a project yeah. and Jess and I are also ensemble members at Lifeline Theater and Jess was there and then I got, I got invited. It, it, our, Jess and I kind of keep overlapping mm-hmm. even before this project. So you were both involved from the very beginning, even during the sort of the development of the idea, or did you come in and it was all set out for you and you just kind of took those ideas and started writing? Could you tell me about that? It was from the absolute beginning. I think that Jeffrey and um, Jim McDonnell, who is the head writer, they all had settled on like a Midwestern Gothic mystery. I think it was set in Ohio. Um, and, and there was a, there was an idea of a, of a house. That's right. Jeffrey, that's right. Jeff went to college in Ohio. And anyway, and, and, and Jess, I forget, where did you, you grew up in St. Louis, St. Louis. Yeah. And I grew up in the Chicago area. So yeah, we all had kind of some relatively Midwestern roots ourselves. I do recall the other thing was that both Jeffrey and Eleanor wanted to be able to talk about memory loss and memory care. Like that was an important part of the, of the initial meeting that, that we still wanted like some some sort of gothic mystery set in the Midwest and whatever that means, but that we were interested in exploring what it was for um, an adult to care for an aging parent. I remember that being pretty important at the start, but then a lot of the details beyond that were worked out in the room. It was a really exciting room to be in too. There, there. I mean, it was like here are some post-it notes. Like, r- write down what 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 is inspiring you right now. Like, write down just like not random, but like write down kind of stream of consciousness ideas about different ways that the plot could go, different things that you would find interesting. And the similar thing we're, we're done with the main characters. You know, it was kind of like okay, so the mother, like who is who is she? You know, let's let's kind of riff on like what's 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 mm-hmm. this what's this person's background. Yeah, well, and we, gosh, I remember, like, vaguely at this point, because, I mean, gosh, it's like two and a half years ago now, almost three. But I remember just, like, having an evening where we were just just tossing names around and trying to, like, just decide, like, what which of these names sounded right. You know, I remember, like, the whiteboards and the post-its and everything. So we have, like, writing for audio, which is, like, I think, as a, as a playwright myself, I think that's kind of a whole different thing. But then when you add other writers in the room with you as well, that adds another layer to it. So had you done the collaborative writing piece before? Uh, I mean, I, I had. Like I said, I came from a device theater background, so a lot of things were, like, myself and an ensemble of, like, five or six other people at least. And sometimes it would be, like, sharing individual pieces and then kind of talking through them and then tearing some apart and recombining them, um, letting some pieces go. I've, I've had literal evenings where we've taken like a 70 page script and laid it out page by page on the floor and then rearranged it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I was, I was definitely coming with, with some of that uh, skill set, which was, which was helpful, I think coming into a writer's room. And it sounds like your personality also, you were open to this idea that everybody could contribute and you, you weren't holding too tightly to your own, you know, <laughs> you weren't being too precious about your own ideas as well. Cause you've had that, you had that practice. I, th- I mean, I think we all try. And I think we also have, have moments where we pick our battles. Well, I uh, had this amazing collaborative experience with, um, a, I guess, my theater partner who is now going um, to grad school at Brown, um, Eileen McGrady. We did a, a collaborative play with this um, musician. Her name's Jen Romero. She is stunning. It was uh, called Wake, a Folk Opera. And what we did when kind of devising this work is we just wrote down all the cool things you wanted to see in a play. And we put them on on um, post-it notes or what index cards. And we just laid them all out. And it was like sharing a meal, glass breaking, 
friendship or an argument, like, like all the tiny things that we kind of wanted to see. And we kind of laid it all out on the floor and stared at it. That experience was so wonderful. And it was so amazing to get to kind of have something similar like that again, where it was like, I'm just going to throw out a ton of crazy ideas. And often I would try to like throw out one crazy idea and then like the opposite one as well, kind of to, to really try to get everyone's brains kind of stretched and maybe I drove people crazy doing that. I hope not. And it's interesting talking about not being too precious with ideas. I think that that is, that's the most difficult thing that I've had to learn is the, the, the push and pull of not being too precious with your ideas, but also kind of knowing when to kind of push back and say like, Oh, like, Oh, are we sure we don't want to do this thing? Cause I really think, can we interrogate the reason why we're choosing not to do the thing I want to do. Yeah, I think that's definitely an important thing. I think that's a good way of putting that of like, there are some, sometimes you're still not like, you're not intractable, but you definitely need a case made for certain battles you're fighting. Yeah. Which, which is, which is nice because it actually holds the rest of your team accountable too. We tend to, I think we tend to trust each other not to just say, well, I don't like it. (laughs) Oh, sure. And that's, I feel like the room wouldn't work. The unwell room really wouldn't work if, if, if people weren't bringing their most kind of generous, curious selves to the room. Yeah, I find when I work as a as a solo writer, I don't always question my own reasons for putting things in a play, or at least, you know, the first draft. I'm just like, well, I like it, and that's why it's there. And so it doesn't necessarily have a, a reason. But when I'm forced to justify that or actually really think it through in a group, it tends to make things a little bit tighter and leaner and I feel like the whole thing kind of holds water a little bit more because it's a little bit more of a rigorous process than if I just sit in my room and kind of spin out the ideas that I like. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. Totally, totally. So was there a learning curve in transitioning from writing for live theater into writing for like scripted audio fiction? Yes. I think both on Pleasure Town and through this, um, I I had some you know, people who, who were much better versed in the audio drama space. So like I was able, so it was real easy for either, either just reading through scripts or, you know, or sitting in a room and talking like to get a a good sense of like, Oh, here's, here, here's a thing that you haven't thought about. And here's a thing you're not doing right. Specifically, one thing I find myself doing less of now than I did when I started is writing a thing that somebody has to tell me that is never going to work in audio. <laughs> Um, mm. it still happens every once in a while, but for me, if I'm writing like a, a play that's on a stage and I put a pause in, like, I know that sometimes I'm, I'm expecting that pause to do something for something to happen visually. I'm expecting like some like a look between two characters or something like that. And you can't have a look between two characters in audio. So, uh, you find other ways to fill that space and still kind of create that tension. You know, if there's like, you know, there's like a sound, there's another sound in the room that helps that pause feel, feel tense because you can't get it from watching actors. So things like that are part of it. I will also say that one of the things that Unwell has that's so like, it's such an asset is that our sound designers are, I don't think I'm being hyperbolic when I say like best in the business, but they're just really, really solid sound designers. And they really like, you can throw a lot of things at them before they will come back and say, this is not possible. (laughs) Yeah, they're amazing. How do you write for your sound designers? How descriptive are you about the sound cues that you put into your scripts? I I do sometimes lean on poetry a little bit or trying not being annoying about it. Because for me, it's not just kind of 
of the footstep, you know, or whatever it is, but you kind of, it's, it's, it's almost like writing a novel a little bit and like having to say, okay, how, how do I, how do I kind of, you know, help the sound designer really kind of feel the emotion that's happening in these sound cues, especially with some of the more abstract sound cues kind of with, with, with this whole, um, like blah, what you were saying about, you know, this, the pause between like the look between two characters and like, how, how do you give the sound designer kind of all the emotional text or like poetic text that I need to kind of create something amazing without me saying like, Oh, like also, you know, have it, there be some magical sparkles here because I don't, I mean, again, like these, these sound designers, I mean, they're, they're the best in the business. Like I, I can't, and um, it would be the worst and most embarrassing if I were to try to kind of walk them through how I think a sound cue should sound. <laughs> but if maybe I can explain how I want it to feel in a way that again is respectful of kind of their time and that they kind of, they're mostly in it for the nuts and, you know, bolts of the character walks from here to there. I did have one sound cue that I am kind of proud of in season two of Unwell. It's an upcoming episode basically where it's about the character Rudy in the show. And I refer to him in the stage art says like Rudy king of the bullshitters thinks quick, something kind of subtle for the actors and but it, it's it's tricky though i know that sometimes and I, yeah, I don't know how consistent i am with this but i know there have definitely been times where the only way i can describe a sound cue is to try and express what i want the audience to feel during this moment like i would like this sound to surprise i would like this sound to be soothing and also is kind of the specific thing for writing for audio like um there are, there are times where it's like i would like a sound that if somebody is listening through headphones as they tend to be is going to kind of surprise them a little bit or like it's going to dance from one ear to the other yeah like that, that sort of disorientation because that's that is kind of a nice thing about audio in a way that you don't necessarily get live which is that you have you have some granular control over the audience experience you get to direct what they should be paying attention to in a way that you can't necessarily do with a larger space I'm super interested in how this process works. And if it's okay with you, I'd like to kind of get into the weeds of this. So I know that you're working about one year out. So your season two is being released right now. And you're also working on season three. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. We actually just had uh, our first meeting and read through the first drafts of the first two episodes of season three last Thursday. So would you kind of step me through it? Yeah, it was it was like yeah, October November was when we had like what three or four kind of yeah, meetings. Like just let's start with the arc of this season and you know where we're going for following season. So like how we build the larger arc, you know things we want to because we, we did have a night where it was like what do we want to see you know this character do or and I say see but you know what uh what is something that we expect of this character what is something we expect of this group of characters these relationships and so we would have conversations about that um and see how we could reconcile all of those I think we had four like we had a, like a little break before, around Thanksgiving and then we finished our fourth one like the fourth night was was us like you know putting a lot of ideas into a spreadsheet, expanding whatever needed to be expanded, uh, tossing away what we couldn't do this season or like, you know, shelving it for a fourth season or just, you know, getting rid of it entirely. And then we, the four writers, uh, Jess and I, and then Jess Best and Jim basically did an episode by episode draft. Yeah. So stressful. 
Yeah, because we, 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 we laid out the skeleton for the season. So it's like we knew what was happening in each episode of the 12 season of the 12 episodes in season three, just as we did for, you know, for season two and just as we did for season one. So it's like we know what's happening in these episodes. And then one by one, we pick our three. It was interesting for season three because we really mapped out the episodes, I feel like, in much more detail than before. It was it was kind of nice because for seasons one and two, it was kind of amazing, like jumping out of an airplane. It was like, whoa, like there the writers were given a lot of freedom as far as like here are some broad strokes. Like this is where we like what we want to learn about the town. But as far as kind of filling in a lot of the episode, we kind of had free reign, at least in the first draft. That was terribly exciting. Um, I feel like I personally maybe kind of I don't know, took that to perhaps its logical conclusion where I, so for season two, I had episodes 11 and 12. Mm -hmm. And so for episode 11, they were like, this is what should happen in 11. And this should happen in 12. And I was like, hmm, like maybe we could combine those into 11. And then I was like, oh, now episode 12 has nothing. So then I just wrote something crazy (laughs) and brought it in. And everyone was like, oh, hmm, that's different than what we told you to write. Um, <laughs> so, but it, it was a kind of room that kind of, I don't know, everyone's like, okay, cool. Well, yeah. And then I, I think it, we ended up then through writing like, oh my gosh, I think it, everyone kind of agreed like that there was this cool thing that we could do in 12, episode 12. Um, that would be great. But for season three, I, I'm more relaxed. I feel like I know, ex- I, I have a pretty strong sense. This is what the episode should be about. I'm not going to go and just make something up and then be like, here, everyone. So yeah, so that's kind of the like development. And then we all go away and and write. And that is for me the most terrifying part because like for epi- for season 3 I have episodes um 6, 8 and 10. And so you just kind of got to go for it. And part of talking about kind of the learning curve for um audio drama is I had to learn how to just kind of be a really fast writer and not and again not be too terribly precious about my work. I remember turning in um episode 2 for season 1. And Jess Best being like, oh, like, I didn't know that we could write Abby. I didn't know they were so nice. And I'm like, oh, whoa, wait a second. And I like, went back and like, right. And I was like, yes, I, I wrote them a little bit off. I wrote them a little wrong. And so I had to go back and rewrite a lot of, and rethink a lot of that stuff. I, I remember Blomai, we had to talk a lot um, in season two um, because of, you know, this new character. This is, this is also another interesting thing about like, even having a conversation with, with somebody outside of the room about Unwell is like, you know, being mindful of where we are in the release schedule. <laughs> and then also, uh, because because the first season of the writer's room, there like we laid out a lot of larger mysteries that we are not going to reveal like even this season. There's stuff that, you know, that exists in the deep, deep archive of what we've discussed already that we're building to. And that's probably it's always kind of an interesting thing in the room for us because that because it's it's another factor we have to think about when we're writing these things where it's like, these are the things that everybody knows. These are the things that nobody knows. And which of these details are we giving to the audience this season or this episode? And I'm sure when we, there's gonna be a point where we go back and realize that there was something we put in our show Bible and we have not, we maybe haven't fully developed it in a way, which is, I think fine. I think part of what's been exciting about this is uh, about, about the, the back and forth process is that like what Jess was describing, you know, that she and best had this like kind of difference of 
characterization and then finding a way between the two to reconcile them and basically deciding like this character is this and that's how we're writing them from now on. And I think one of the things that's also interesting with that is that the first season, you know, we're writing the script before we've even heard the actors. Do you remember what Jess Best said about writing? She's like, I feel like I'm writing fan fiction for a show <laughs> I haven't seen. Because there's also there's that funny thing that happened where after the first season dropped and, you know, and people were responding to it, like we we saw some fan art of these characters, which was fascinating because it was, you know, people coming up with the characters based only on what they heard. And, you know, and some of them don't look anything like the actors that we already know. I, I keep going back to that, to the drawing I remember seeing. I'm just like going, okay, I guess that is what Rudy looks like. You know, it, it's something I think about when I'm writing Rudy. The back and forth is is interesting because, like, like Jess said, especially like, you know, early episodes, like you come in and you bring details that maybe the person who's got the episode after you, because we're writing like, you know, we're writing at a clip, you know, of, of reading two episodes a week. So there might be something that somebody brought in in episode three and you have episode five next week and something they said in episode three completely upends episode five for you. During this first round, you can decide, like, I think I'd rather do what they're doing in episode three and like toss out this thing that I was going to do in episode five that contradicts it. Or you can come in and say... I was thinking about this. Can we talk about episode three? You can do that when episode three is being read or when you bring in episode five. When you bring in episode five. I feel like that's better to kind of sell everyone on your amazing idea. You're like, eh? Like, I don't know. (laughs) Look, I wrote this. I'm not just like thinking about it. (laughs) Because I I know I've, I've definitely had moments where I brought in a later episode and I did have to say like, I, I feel strongly about this and I know it contradicts something that happened earlier. So maybe there's a way to reconcile that. And there have been times where it's like, oh, actually, I think I think the thing that happened earlier is the right thing. And I'm going to abandon my idea. Um, and then mm-hmm. nobody ever sees the contradictory idea when I bring in the later. So it sounds like you had that cluster of four meetings where you kind of laid everything out. Then assignments were made. You all go and write your episodes. And then very quickly after that, you have like first draft readings of two episodes at a time. And then when you get to the end of that season of readings, do you then go back and make changes based on like the reality of the season as written? Yeah, we'll have we'll have like kind of just a summary for ourselves of what we have. Because one of the things you discover over the course of the season, it's not even necessarily contradictory things, but you might have a, a thing happen where, where you're like, oh, we didn't realize that this ancillary character, like Marisol, for example, um, it's like oh, Marisol appears in like this episode and then this episode at the very end of the season. And then you have no idea where they've been the rest of the time. And so we, we find ourselves having moments where it's like, you know, do we want to find a way to put Marisol back in somewhere else? And then there's also, I mean, there's also a practical aspect to it, which is, you know, budget wise average, we're trying to keep it within like five characters an episode, go higher and we can go lower. You know, thankfully that's not like boo hazard my job to determine that. But every so often, you know, Jeffrey and Eleanor, as executive producers, do have to come back to us and say, uh, this this scene you have here, we love this scene you have here, but it would help us if we could, you know, if we, we cut it out. You know, they'll make a case for it. It's it's always been about, here's a tiny money thought, but if, if it's what the episode needs, like, of course. In audio, that is, I feel like, one of the differences um, is that having sometimes having too many voices in an episode can kind of be a lot and sometimes the episodes need it but other times um 
there is kind of some elegance in kind of having the gentle reminder of, hey, like, do we really need 20 characters in this, you know, 25 minute episode? Or could we kind of focus it up a little more? And, and at that, uh, on that level, it's also one of the things that's kind of nice about audio is I think there's a lot more room for single shot characters. <laughs> like you have like, you know, people come in and do like a line. Like we have a little room for that, which is nice because we have written a town and uh, it's nice to be able to, you know, to have a moment where, where you can hear extra voices and not have it just be a core group of five people. But, but I think that's also a nice thing about audio compared to stage. If you write a stage play where somebody appears for all of 10 seconds, I mean, you, you better have a really, really good reason. And you're going to have a very unhappy actor. <laughs> but yeah, if it's just like, oh, hey, you know, uh, we need somebody to, to shout out a line in the middle of a town hall meeting. And oh, my cousin's in town. Hey, you want to be part of you want to be part of an episode of Unwell? That's not hard. And it can be a lot of fun. This is not the right word, but do you police the consistency of voice and continuity and all of that as a group? Or is there one person who is kind of tasked with double checking that? I feel like it's kind of as a group. I don't know. We just have such, it's nice. The other three writers are so effing great. I don't think we've ever really had a problem with the voice being strange. There's also an interesting thing that's happened, um, certainly like that I've noticed throughout season two, is that somehow in our draft, some of us ended up with other characters more often. I ended up with Rudy for most of season two, and Nora. Like, and like I, I was you know given the 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 enviable task of uh, creating Nora um, for the first episode that she appears in. But I've I've actually had very little time with Abby. Uh, like other writers in the room have spent more time with Abby. But when I do get to have Abby, I'm thinking about like how Best has written Abby and how Jess Buha has written Abby, and uh, I'm thinking I'm thinking to the people who've written Abby more and saying mm-hmm. well, what, what have they given Abby already, and how can I match them in some way? Mm-hmm. Also, now that we have Kathleen, like how can I match what Kathleen does for Abby? Uh, Kathleen, the actor. So you have a show Bible somewhere that you all can access that contains just all this stuff um, about, you know, future seasons and the map of this season, the episode breakdowns. Is that what is contained in the Bible? We also have in-depth descriptions of all the characters. And that also helps, like, where are all these characters from? Like, I guess some stuff about their background and how, how they all kind of got to the town. And that, that all helps as well. The One of the things that's interesting about, like, having such long, such long production times is, um, well, because we, we were writing season two. And season one was being released an episode at a time. And, uh, or at least it was three episodes in a first chunk and then an episode every couple weeks. And I definitely had a moment middle of season one where a thing that was said in one of Jim's episodes, like while I was listening to it, I was like, oh, this is something that, uh, that is going to really make the thing I was planning for season two, episode 11, very hard. (laughs) Like in some ways that's, even more helpful than going back to the show Bible. It, and part of that's because sometimes edits are made during recording and you're not, and you, like if you're the writer, you tend to, you can be there. You know, if you're not, then so then you might find out like during the rough cuts, or you might find out when the show is actually released, what somebody else may have done. I know, Buha, you can talk about this a lot more, but I, I had heard that a lot of, uh, a lot of revision happened with your episode 12 and recording or two twelve. Oh, well, yeah, I love, 
going to the recording session, there's nothing kind of more, I don't know, like getting the old adrenaline going than like <laughs> going into a room, hearing the actors say the words, being like, hmm, the words could be better. Like these aren't, ah, like this needs to get a little bit of love immediately. So the way that the recording session works is um, Jeffrey is the, I guess, functions out the, like the director. So they're sitting kind of, the the actors are kind of in a, in a C around them. And there's like this tiny little, like almost like a, you know, I feel like the, the, the director chair is like lifted up a little bit above everyone else. So it's like, <laughs> it's, it's magical. So, so the actors all read through the episode once and then Jeffrey gives them notes and, as the writer, you're like, okay, like I, these, these few lines aren't working or like, oh, like this whole huge question that we have to answer all of a sudden, like, oh yeah. Like what, why is the actor is struggling saying this line? Oh, probably not the actor's fault. What, what was the intention? Um, why, why are they saying this line? Oh wait, like it's because there's this whole thing you have to fix immediately. You know, you have five minutes and I was so lucky with episode 12 to have so much kind of support that we ended up finding a solution so elegantly that it kind of, it just seemed so like an obvious elegant solution where it's like, Oh, that was my secret plan the whole time. Um, <laughs> so Jess, you hear them read it for the first time on the same day that the episode is being recorded. Is that right? So we, we, we do the thing where we, we read the first drafts and it's, it's just like us intimate. It's just the, the six of us. Um, mm-hmm. It's yeah, Jeffrey, Eleanor, um, and then the four writers, I mean, we all just divide up parts. And so we're all reading everyone's parts. So then we go away and then we, um, then we write second drafts and then we, we don't hear those second drafts out loud until we have a whole season read through where it's like six hours or so. And we get all the actors together. Um, Eleanor and Jeffrey make food and it's just this lovely communal day where we read the entire season all at once in lieu of kind of um, a discussion out loud about the stuff everyone writes down uh, everyone who wants to then it's the actors there are uh, some members of the board are there i feel like next year maybe some sound designers will come into town for it because we have like a lead sound designer who is local uh ryan shealy and, we, and a couple of the other sound designers are also local but we also have like a handful of sound designer i mean again one of those nice things about audio fiction is that uh we have sound designers from like across like north america <laughs> Eli McElveen's from uh, Canada, um, right? And uh, Alexander Danner from Boston, and uh, and they're all just they're all just great. I mean, and Jeffrey Jeffrey sends them the rough stuff, and and they send back magic. Yeah, so we have the um, whole season read through, and then we all go away. And at least for me, because I just the way I like to write is kind of figuring stuff out in the draft, which is not the way everyone writes, and which is not honestly, which is a type of writing that is slightly better suited for theater when you have a longer lead time. And so when I, like for episode 12, the draft was very different than the one that the actors had read. So the first time I was hearing this draft read out loud was indeed at this three hour recording session. And yeah, and there were some, some kinks that had to be kind of worked out. Uh, Yeah. Which was honestly a little bit stressful on my end, but everyone was, yeah, it it was, I think it, it ended up being amazing. How nice that you all could be in the same room together as writers, but then also with the actors. I mean, I know that there are lots of advantages to being able to do things remotely. Personally, I think it's nice to kind of have a mixture so that you can actually see some people and have a conversation and be in the same place um, rather than just trying to do everything through email or, or Zencaster or other things like that. Yeah. And it's, you know, there's things that um, when you're in the room with the actors just reading, you get reminded of the, of the way they perform because because you know they're they're reading off the script, but there's you know there's obviously there's physical 
things happening and like there's facial expressions and sometimes they you know they will find ways to they'll they'll find ways to revise it for you in just how they're performing yeah. and you get to see and it's like oh if, like the, the look on like marsha's face when she reads this line from dot and like oh then then that's that's the word i should put here that's gonna work much better it, I mean, it is it is similar to putting them on stage but i mean they're on stage in front of you you're the only one who really gets to process that and make changes on it. Yeah, well, it sounds like you're being influenced by all of the input that you're receiving. And I think that that makes a lot of sense. One of the things that I was really surprised about when I started writing for audio is that some words are just really hard to say and they just don't sound. Yes. They just don't sound right when they're spoken out loud. And I mean, you think you would know that from theater, but I don't know. It's like at a different level when it's when you only have the audio. It's like, oh, man, I'm sorry I strung those five words together for you. I need to go back and change those right away. <laughs> I think uh, I, there were there were at least a few times where I became very aware of certain homophones on stage, you know, with a live person. It's like when they see you and they use the word C, S-E-E, it's very clear what they're saying as opposed to the word S-E-A. But I know there were definitely times where I'm like, oh, when you just hear it, this sounds like something very different. Right. Yeah. It's it's a whole different way of kind of indicating for the audience what is happening and who you're talking to and, you know, where everybody is and what their names are and like all of that stuff that has to be tracked in like a kind of a different way. Took me a while to kind of really realize, oh, yeah, if somebody is entering the room, you have to like, you have to really know when the person has entered the room and like at least have them say something, you know, like not just have yeah. them running around in the background getting a bowl of cereal. And for me, I'm not a huge fan of like exposition <laughs> and finding a way to hide exposition in natural dialogue is, I mean, it's hard. I think it's hard enough on, on a live stage. And I think it's a very different and unique sort of challenge in audio because you do have to give the audience something in that dialogue. Then again, the nice thing here is that you can find ways to do that with sound effects as opposed to dialogue. You can, you can have like the sound of a toaster going off to say that you're in the kitchen without having somebody walk in and say, oh, what are you doing here in the kitchen? Right, right. I see you're making toast, right? Exactly. exactly. <laughs> so if you came across somebody who was writing for the theater who wanted to make a transition into writing scripted audio fiction, you know, what are a few pointers or tips? Let's let's make it be sort of about the practice, kind of along the lines that we were just talking about. Like if you wanted to, you know, transition into this medium, these are things that you might want to keep in mind. I think get really used to thinking in terms of imagery, like of audio imagery and how can you hang your the plot device or the plot points on like somehow like if not having to be completely audio focused, but how, how can you use this to your advantage? Uh, there's this um, amazing, I went to the inaugural year of Pod Tales, which is this audio drama convention in Boston um, that Alexander Danner, one of our sound designers created. And I was at this panel and there was um, a writer there and he was like, don't have any invisible monsters. And so really, really trying to lean into, you have kind of this one amazing amazing tool in your toolbox and it's this cool uh, just the best sword ever you use you, you know like really think about how, how how you can use it i mean sound can really just transcend kind of our experience and it's such a powerful powerful thing to to be an audience of one and to be listening to to this and have it be have it be so intimate this intimate performance kind of just for you in your kitchen while you're doing dishes or when you're driving you know and so it's yeah it's an amazing amazing thing 
Uh, I'm, try- I'm trying to figure out a way to say this that doesn't make me sound like really pretentious. Um, <laughs> the I'm somebody who does not write music, but I do at times think of writing for audio as what I imagine writing for music can be. More specifically, I think of each of these characters I'm working with as like a unique instrument. Like I do find myself asking, like, does this part of the script need a duet between the clarinet and the saxophone? And so how do you make those voices distinct? How do you make them different? And how do you make what they're doing different? And how do they like overlap each other? How do they play with each other? Because I think perhaps even more so than live stage, making sure your characters do not all sound like one another is super crucial. And that's in casting, that's in cadence, that's in the language that they use. Because if you have a scene where you are only receiving it through one set of senses, through your ears, and your characters don't sound distinct enough, then you're not giving the audience enough to build their own imagination from it. Just paying paying so much attention to voice, I think, is one of the more important things. I just want to check in and see if there's anything else you would like to mention or talk about before we wrap up. Yeah, I don't know where this fits in, but just a quick shout out to um, like writing for audio drama and being a parent. Um, like, so I'm primary caregiver to my two young children. I have a four-year-old and a one-year-old. I love the theater. I love going to rehearsal, but it is so nice to have a, this very um, exciting, invigorating, creative outlet that doesn't require being at a theater for three months, going to oh. rehearsal. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Yeah. Full disclosure, that's why I switched to writing for audio because I have two kids and I was like, I can't, I can't be doing this anymore. It's not going to work. I need something that's more flexible and that has a different kind of production timeline and has different demands of my life. So do you have other thoughts about that? Oh my goodness. As like a parent, specifically like having this, this gig as like a full-time being a full-time caregiver. Um, I love my job, but I do live at work as far as like taking care of my two very boisterous, wonderful kids. And I remember being overwhelmed and my mom being like, you got to give up this playwriting thing. Like, that's Mm. just, you know, I don't know what else she's like, you, you're so stressed out. Like you can't. And I was just, I couldn't even explain to her. I'm like, this one, I want, I want to hold on to this. This is, you know, I feel like so much of when, when the kids are super young, it's like just wiping butts and but he puked on me and like, that's fine. I'm going to just like, it's all fine. I will just figure out it's four in the morning. Yes. Like mopping the puke off myself is like 15th on the list of like things that have to happen. And so it's nice to be like, I'm a person who I'm an artist. So often I don't feel like an artist. I still am a playwright, but I just remember so clearly my son was 15, 16 months old where it's like, maybe it's fine if I take him to rehearsal. Cause I used to take my kids when they're little, you know, three and four months old when all they do is they're either sleeping or breastfeeding. So they're actually pretty quiet at rehearsal. And I remember trying to take my 16 month old kid to rehearsal and it was horrible. Obviously. I, and I mean, no, no, it's like, why on earth would you take a literal wild feral animal to rehearsal? <laughs> and the director rightly so kind of pulled me aside and was like, you know, Hey, like that can't happen. But I didn't really know what else to do. And, and this has, it's been so great because I, I, I can totally get away for like an, an evening a week. And, and also to have, I remember I was like, 
rocking a child for just like hours until you're like, this is just, I'm just a ghost that walks around the house with this baby rocking. I remember like checking Twitter. So I wrote the the celery jingle um, in episode 11 for um, season one. Mm -hmm. I remember like there were like a couple people on the internet on Twitter talking about my jingle. And -hmm. that made me feel really great. And so it's, it's like, I guess the, it just packs a little more of a powerful punch, the audio, you know, it's like, as far as, as the time commitment that I can give while still getting, getting sleep, because I totally, this is a separate story. Um, I totally did sleepwalk um, because of a script deadline that I had to do. That was horrible. Episode two of this season, which was, you know, just released a little bit ago, the one where Rudy is constantly falling asleep and waking up and like, Mm -hmm. I wrote I wrote that in the throes of my own lengthy like not not getting enough sleep stretch. So it's a real thing to kind of balance parenthood and being like I can't you know a kid is sick I, I got to stay up with them you know right. no, there's nobody else it's on me and like if if there's a script deadline you know or if there's this or that and also what's what's been really amazing also about the auto drama thing was so this episode twelve thing that I talked about earlier mm-hmm. uh, in season two where I just kind of wrote I had a really bold idea and I tried it. And Eleanor was like, cool. Or everyone was like, great, except maybe do something else. (laughs) (laughs) So there was a happy meeting that was um, produced, but I had to to write a whole new draft on a kind of a tight deadline. And I think that was when I was like doing that hilarious thing where I'm like typing one handed while breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Eleanor, I'm going to make this draft. She's like, I have total confidence in you. I'm like, great. And I was like, I'm going to do it. She's like, I am not worried at all. And then finally she was like, where it's, I was like, draft is coming. It's coming. And finally she's like, we need to move the recording session because like, it's not there. And we ended up not having to move it. But the fact that Eleanor did not say we have to cancel the recording session. She, she did the most supportive way anyone could to say, Hey, I think we might need to shift this around. And so she was on my, you know, it was like a difference of someone being on your team and being like, Hey, like you need a little bit extra support. We're going to give it to you. And not like you are completely effing over the whole team. I mean, I guess that's also a crucial thing for anybody looking to get into audio drama, like have producers who have your back, who know how hard this is and are not like, do not just view you as like, you know, script monkey, <laughs> like, you know, right. create, a thing, create a thing for me. Um, yeah, Eleanor and Jeffy are both so understanding. And as writers, we, we are pushing ourselves too, especially writers on a team. You know, you want to meet the standards of the writers in the room around you. You want to impress the people around you because you're impressed by them. Yeah, and I think Jeffrey and Eleanor really do a really good job of like of maintaining an atmosphere that is supportive, even when even when we make mistakes. Like even when we, you know, if we bring in a draft of something that's like, okay, here here's a couple of reasons why this isn't going to quite work, but let's um, let's talk them through and let's send you off to make a new draft with everything you need to make a new draft. Not uh, not this was wrong. Go back, do it again. That's just really important. Sounds like a wonderful team and that leads to better work overall. So I would like to thank you so much for this conversation. It has been so inspirational and I love Unwell. I can't wait to see, well, to hear what is going to be happening this season and beyond. And I I just wish you both all of the best. If you would like to continue today's conversation, please visit HowlRound.com and follow HowlRound and Artist Soapbox on Twitter and Facebook. A big thank you to the staff at HowlRound who make this show possible. Our music is Spring Idol by Penny Miles. Check out the show notes for links and for more information. 
Thank you. 